So, tonight, as we begin to talk about fortitude, the virtue of fortitude, I want to ask you a question. I want you to answer it in the quiet of your own mind. What would you do if you were never afraid? What would you do if you were never afraid? Maybe you would share a secret with uh, a parent. Maybe you would uh, say something to a a coworker. Maybe you would quit your job. Maybe you would fill in the blank. If you were not afraid of failure, if you were not afraid of being rejected by that person, if you were not afraid of giving up control, what is it that you would do? And I want you to capture that because here in a moment, I'm actually going to ask us to do something with it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 13, Paul exhorts the Corinthians to stand firm, to be courageous, and to be steadfast. So there is something about Christianity that is not just this meek humility, this humbleness that gets uh, tread upon where we're always like lambs to the slaughter. Okay? There is a part of the Christian ethic that just does tell us to be meek and to be mild, to live simple lives. And then there are also times where we're to stand firm, Paul says, be courageous and be steadfast. So asking a question like, what would you do if you were not afraid, is actually something that we as Christians can ask in good conscience, believe it or not. That may not be um, you know, part of your personality, or it may be, let's be honest, for some of us, too much a part of your personality. So what we're looking to do is to see fortitude as a virtue do something in us. Here's what we want it to do. We want to see fortitude as the virtue that moderates our fears. We want to see fortitude be the virtue that moderates, finds a middle ground for our fears. So let's deal with a definition. If that's what uh, fortitude does, let's talk about what it is. Fortitude ensures firmness in difficulties and constancies in the pursuit of the good. It strengthens the resolve to resist temptation and to overcome obstacles in the moral life. So you'll notice again, just like last week when we were talking about temperance, that there is a mediation that happens, and then there are two kind of ways that this, uh, that this virtue plays out in our lives. In fact, we get this from St. Thomas Aquinas. We've been quoting him a lot in Summa Theologica. He has a lot to say about these virtues, but he says that this virtue of fortitude is played out in our lives in two areas. There are two places where it's exhibited. First is endurance in the midst of difficulties, and the ability to withstand attacks by difficulties. So there's endurance and there's attack. Let's talk about both of those things. Endurance, we kind of get, you know, we we kind of intuit what that is. It's to bear our difficulties well, and in so doing, we must temper our fears so that we are not controlled by them. So an example of this might be uh, a marriage that has become cold and a person who is frightened by living a life of unhappiness with the person that they're married to for forever. And what fortitude is going to do is going to encourage that person with the gospel, 
let them know that there is an ability to endure that difficulty in a way that glorifies God. Is it going to fix everything? It's probably not going to fix everything. But fortitude, what it does as a virtue is give you that kind of courage to face the fear of a marriage like that and know that God is good in the midst of it. That's what this virtue actually has the ability to do. So that's endurance. The second is attack, to bear the difficulties themselves as opposed to the fear of those difficulties. You see what's happening here? So we can be afraid and we can be, you know, kind of disintegrated by that fear. And this virtue is going to help us uh, with fortitude face that fear and endure it. But then the other thing it's going to do is help us bear the difficulties themselves when it is possible and reasonable to do so. So does fortitude actually enable you to face an attack that you are going to be overcome by? No, not really. There are some things that are just going to crush people. There are things that actually kill people. Fortitude in the face of that doesn't have the ability to change that outcome. What this does is allow us to face those difficulties when possible and reasonable to do so. So here's an example of that. Maybe you're at work. Maybe you're in the midst of a family reunion and somebody is slandering you. And you're not afraid of the continuance of that slander. You don't like the slander itself. That's the actual difficulty. And what this is going to help you do is confront the slanderer, the coworker, the family member in a social situation that actually allows you to face that thing that is not just causing fear, but is the difficulty itself. That's what fortitude is. So some of it is dealing with fear. Some of it is dealing with the difficulty itself. Those are the two kind of areas that Aquinas points out. Fear itself is a normal part of the human experience in a fallen world. Now, each one of those words is carefully chosen because fear is not a part of the world as the Lord intended it. But in this post-fallen world, in this place where sin has made ruin and wreck of so much, we do know that that is a normal part of the human experience. And even though that's not the greatest comfort in the world, for us to know that something weird is not happening when we do face things that cause us to fear is some amount of comfort. The question is, are we fearing the right things to the right degree? Are we fearing the right things to the right degree? It's not, does fear exist? Or if I'm a Christian, am I ever going to face fear? Or is, are there actually things that I ought to be fearful of? The real questions there is, are we fearing the right things? And are we fearing them to the right degree? That means that there are some vices. Every week we kind of pick out how there are virtues. And those virtues have these counter virtues, these vices on the other side. Some of the vices that we we would say here in light of these two things is a fearlessness of things that ought to be frightful. Okay, so it's, uh, it's not a good thing to be fearless when there are things that you should actually be afraid of, right? So one, one vice is fearlessness in the uh, face of things that ought to be frightful. And the other one's more intuitive. It's fearfulness of things that ought not to be feared. That's what we, most of the time, we struggle with. The first one's a little schizophrenic, right? Not to fear things that ought to cause us some amount of fear. But those are our vices. And what we find is, is that fortitude fortifies us. 
It actually creates some amount of durability, some resilience in us to be able to endure difficulties and to face the attack of difficulties and to, uh, to do something with them, namely glorify God and namely help others in the midst of that. So fortitude moderates fears. One, so that we do not shrink away from attack, uh, the attacks of difficulties when it is prudent and reasonable to do so. And second, so that we are able to endure those difficulties and do not withdraw away from doing good. So we, all of us can think about a moment where we've been uh, fearful, we let that fear conquer us, and then the good that we might have been being called to do or have the ability to do, we were disabled from doing. And we know that that lack of courage, that lack of fortitude, actually resulted in some amount of sin, some amount of uh, uncarefulness of others, some lack of glorifying God in the midst of what he was calling us to do. So... The good actually is that fortitude is needed for the spiritual life, okay? Fortitude is needed for the good life. Let me give you an example of this. We have these disciplines in our lives. If I were to ask you, when, when are you most disciplined to read God's word or to be in prayer? Sometimes that's not when we are most fearful because a lot of times fearful can actually disintegrate our ability or our desire to go to the Lord in prayer. Fortitude is needed for the spiritual life because it persists when prayer is difficult or even dry when you uh, feel like maybe there is just this season where uh, you identify with David in the Psalms where he says, where are you, O Lord? How long are you going to withhold your blessing, your presence from me? Fortitude stands in the face of that fear that God is not near and persists in the midst of that feeling. Okay, fortitude actually is needed for us. When God is calling us up to give up something difficult, that takes fortitude. Does God always call us to uh, live a life of abundance and to uh, live in the midst of comfort and to persist in our uh, doing of things that we always like? No, of course not. He calls us at different times to give up things. It takes fortitude to obey him in those moments, doesn't it? Fortitude is needed for the spiritual life. When God asks us to have faith and to trust him, when he calls you into the unknown, when he calls you to surrender your will to his, it takes fortitude, doesn't it? Fortitude is necessary for the spiritual life. So what we see is, is that uh, fortitude is really important. It actually begets some really important things in us. Fortitude gives us uh, patience when patience is needed. It gives us perseverance when perseverance is needed. It gives us constancy when the people around us need somebody who is constantly there, who's willing to help. So I've got uh, an application for you this evening, and I want you to take up these questions, um, write them down. If there's one that uh, seems uh, specifically pertinent to you, discuss it when you go to dinner with the rest of your uh, discipleship group tonight, if that's what you're doing. The first one is, how do you respond when things don't go as planned, when you experience setbacks? What is your heart level response? The second one is this. 
How do you respond when you're mistreated by others? give you a little key here. A lot of times our, uh, when we are mistreated, we can either defer into vengeance, say unkind things in return, or we can retreat and not stand up for ourselves and then enter into a cycle of shame because we didn't stand up for ourselves. Here's something that I want to take up together, and this is going to be hard for the people that are listening to this afterwards, but I want it to be a group discussion. So take those first two away with you, either individually or with a group uh, at a later time. But with this question, I want to ask uh, just for some openness. Which is more challenging to you? We introduced this idea of uh, uh, an attacking and an enduring. So when you are attacked by problems or difficulty, do you find it uh, difficult to, uh, you know, to have fortitude and kind of in some ways face those difficulties when you feel attacked? Maybe you see an injustice. Is, uh, is that challenging? Or is enduring a trial more difficult for you? My, my guess is, is that for all of us, we're going to have difficulty with both, right? There are certain people that it's very easy to uh, face when uh, we feel attacked. There are some people where it's like, no problem, got it. But when another person with a you know, particular status in our life or in our culture has something to say to us, sometimes we recoil. Uh, for others of us, it's, uh, it's times where it's just like, man, um, this is a really difficult season and just enduring the day-to-day uh, either monotony or hurt or difficulties of life, that the endurance is hard. So for you, which one is more difficult, uh, facing uh, the difficulties themselves or enduring the difficulties in time? Yeah. Yeah, that's really uh, very insightful. It can be very difficult to endure when you don't know what the end date is on that. It's really good. I think for me it's an attack because I'm a major people pleaser, so I think not only is the attack hurtful, but then there's like a prolonged meditation over the attack, mm-hmm. whether or not they intended that. Yeah. Which I then leads to some endurance. Um, I think I endure and try Yeah, yeah, that's, uh, I, I can resonate with that in particular on um, the cycle of kind of repeated, so there's the attack, but then there's the like replay of the attack over and over in our mind. I wish that I had said this thing that was very hurtful. And um, I, I uh, had a, um, did this training one time where someone introduced this concept to me. I don't have this, and so it was very helpful for me. Uh, that there are people that have, we all have like answering machines, that's not a real thing anymore, but we have like answering machines in our brains that like, okay, I heard this thing, now I've got to do something with it, and now I delete it. Or the other side of that is, I heard it, I'm going to replay it. And then I'm going to replay it again and replay it again. And so there, there are within every one of us a, you know, kind of uh, um, 
a desire on whether or not to delete and get rid of or to replay that. And replaying those things can be, you know, kind of its own attack. It's not like you're not even under attack anymore, but you are in your own mind. I can identify with that. Thank you all for being vulnerable. Um, yeah, I just want to uh, write that down, uh, think about it a little bit. Is it an endurance or is it the attack? It's probably both in some ways or in certain situations, but dealing with that can help you identify opportunities for uh, fortitude. So then I want to uh, actually take another jump from fortitude into something that uh, fortitude produces in us. And that's a very interesting word. It's magnanimity. I can barely say it, but fortitude gives us this trait. The ways of the Lord are not comfortable, but we were not created for comfort, but for greatness. This is a quote that I came across, and I was like, I don't know. I don't know if the Lord created us for greatness. But then I started marching through the gospel and the fact that we are adopted into a family, that we are more than conquerors with Christ. The truth is, is that in the end, God did not create us for mediocrity, created us for greatness. So the question is, what is this word? What does it mean to be magnanimous? Magnanimous actually means greatness of soul. Man, what a good definition. You want to tattoo something on you. Mag magnanimous, greatness of soul. And this is not opposed to humility, I was really keen to find out. That's, that's interesting, because you kind of think about like greatness, and you think, oh, well, that's the opposite of humility. The magnanimous pursues greatness in proportion to their true ability. Humility takes stock of all of the gifts that God has given and seeks to use them to their utmost. So this is not a question of being a great person. This is a question of stewardship. God has been very clear that he gives each and every single one of us gifts to be stewarded for his kingdom. And the actual desire to foster those and to foster those with what we'll find out here in just a moment, confidence actually is uh, the byproduct of the virtue of fortitude. Aquinas says this, Magnanimity makes a man deem himself worthy of great things in consideration of the gifts he holds from God. He pursues what is most honorable, not honor itself. So there is a distinction here. We're not trying to go in, out and be fortified and get the acclaim of our fellow man, what we are trying to do is to stand firm in the gifts that God has given in proportion to the, uh, the fact that he has given them to us and then do those things in order to glorify God and to love others. Rather, magnanimity is selfless. Aristotle says this. He says that eagerness, that magnanimity is the eagerness to help others. It's a uh, sincereness in our uh, desire to assume arduous, challenging undertakings when necessary to be used by God to do extraordinary things. That's what it is. And when I think about that, I think of a man like Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer stood and opposed uh, the Nazis, Hitler himself even, um, because he had some fortitude. 
and he was certain about what it is that God was after in this life, what was good and moral, and he made decisions to actually oppose those things out of a desire to glorify God and out of a desire to see love displayed to others. So I think about fortitude in a person like that. The magnanimous person aims to simply give the best of themselves for the sake of others. They do what is truly honorable for the gain of others simply because it is good and honorable. Uh, the author that uh, I've been reading, uh, Sri, um, that's his last name. Uh, when I think of mag magnanimity, I think of an inner movement of the soul, a stretching forth towards God and towards whatever great and noble tasks he may be inviting me to do, fighting against injustices, shouldering important undertakings, serving oppressing need, confronting evils, building something that will serve the church and bless many. That's what he thinks of when he thinks of magnanimity. So I want to ask this uh, question of you. How does this confront themes running through Christian culture today? So, so we have quite a lot of different things that are actually happening in Christian culture, and, and magnanimity doesn't seem like it's right at the center of those things. Um, in fact, we have quite a, few, uh, quite a few books that exalt messiness in life. It's not necessarily an evil thing, but, um, you know, but we have a lot of that. We uh, have a lot of stuff that's written about uh, the simple life of a Christian. That's not bad. That's actually good. We strive towards a restfulness and a simplicity. But oftentimes, at least in a culture quite as comfortable as ours, where we can pursue quite as much as, uh, amusement as we do, we can actually take those desires for an easy life, kind of baptize them in some spiritual things and forsake opportunities to actually grow in fortitude, to say difficult things and rebuke a brother or sister who's in sin. That takes some fortitude, doesn't it? To, to step out on a limb and do something that if we fail, other people will obviously see, right? There's something to taking on a project that's done in the uh, quiet of a bedroom or a hobby shop or your office. It's quite another thing to start something that might fall flat on its face, right? It takes some fortitude to go out and do that. It takes some fortitude to um, ask God for direction in your life. Know that there are very few moments that we receive clarion calls from above, right? And so oftentimes what God was wanting us to do is to walk out in faith. And when we're doing that in faith, there are times where we disappoint, we fall down, we look foolish, take some fortitude to actually follow out on those callings. So how does this confront themes running through Christian culture? It runs parallel and alongside of them in a life where we are called to live simply. Uh, we're called to see God as a God who comes in the midst of our mess, but does not leave us there, that picks us up out of them and creates order in our lives, who actually cleanses us, brings us into an orderly kingdom, right? But then also creates and generates something within our hearts that might actually call us to action, things that take fortitude. The second question that I've got is this, how does comfort and pleasure, incessant distraction and amusement actually work against the idea of fortitude? 
So I, I mentioned this as a part of uh, you know, themes in Christian culture, but in your life, if we were to drill down, are there distractions in your life that actually take you away from opportunities to actually engage with, a one another, with another person in a way that might, uh, that might call you to have some fortitude? Yeah. I experience that. There are things that uh, rather than taking that phone call, I'll just keep reading that thing or listening to that podcast because I know that that phone call is going to be difficult. So I delay. It's a lack of courage. It's a lack of fortitude. So comfort and pleasure, incessant distraction and amusement can work against these kinds of things. I had a quote that I kind of wanted to uh, uh, dwell on together um, that uh, I thought was really good at illuminating the problem. It says this, instead of aspiring for excellence in God's goodness, we are taught oftentimes to seek economic success social acceptance, material comfort, and pleasure. Or we are told through advertising or endless commercials that we need not aim for anything higher than our own gratification, so we immerse ourselves in distractions and trivialities. Um, this seems like a good, uh, a good description of, uh, of what I encounter a lot of times in my life things that actually uh, steal me away from the glorification of God and the good of uh, the pursuit of good for others. So what this does is it illuminates um, another vice, uh, fusillanimous, actually means smallness of soul. It means mediocrity. So it's not aspiring to great things, it's an acquiescence, it's a pacificness in life that leads not to grand things or accomplishments in the inner life, but actually leads to uh, atrophy, uh, you know, to unseriousness in, um, in our inner lives. So I thought that that was an interesting word. I had never heard uh, either of those definitions before, even though I had heard both of those words before. And what it does is it illuminates a sin it illuminates the uh, sin of, uh, of the waste of God-given potential. So for us, God gives each and every single one of us uh, potential, these gifts that we're to steward. It also illuminates the sin of ignoring God's calling on our lives. Maybe God has given you desire and passion to love and serve the least of these, but there are things in your life that actually uh, allow you to continue on in whatever trivialities you have going on here rather than addressing the, uh, the injustices that you see and that the Lord's put on your heart. It's a sin. Or it's the sin of a failure of courage in the face of fear. When God calls us to action because we have something that we're afraid of, uh, there's a failure of courage. There's also another vice that I think sets within all of this, and that's uh, vanity, that's vainglory. So rather than trying to glorify God through fortitude, there's a desire for our own glory. There's a vanity inside of us. It's a confidence not in God and what he can do, or a confidence in what he has called us to, or a confidence in the good gifts that he is asking us to steward, or a confidence in his ability to meet out every good thing in this life, but it's a confidence rather in self. We can even see 
the word pulled apart, confidence. Con, fide, ins. The word faith is really right in the middle of that word. And I wonder what it would be like for the people of City Church to see confidence as something that has its essence in faith, in fide. What are you putting your faith in? Is it in self? When we place our faith in God, we realize that the words of Romans are really true. If God is for us, who can be against us? Uh, nothing in this world, no height or depth, no angel, no ruler, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Why? Because we have faith in Him. We have a confidence in Him.